Hello and welcome to episode 263 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fans Weekly Podcast of Many Topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and I'm joined here today by uh, two people whom, whom I haven't spoken to in a while. First, Tina Ola. Hi. And second, Rob Fenner. Hey, thanks for having me back. And uh, thank you to uh, all of our backers for helping us meet this uh, uh, the stretch goal for this surprise appearance. Oh, I wish we had backers. I, 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 <laughs> I, I wish we had funds. So, but, but we have uh, neither crowds nor funds here at Retro Encounter, but regardless, we're going to have an episode all about crowdfunding. Um, crowdfunding, uh, listeners, you probably know this already, so I apologize for being pedantic for 40 seconds. Uh, crowdfunding is a catch-all term for a voluntary community-funded project. And uh, the, the most popular online crowdfunding platform is probably Kickstarter. Kickstarter launched in 2009 and basically is a, uh, a creative outlet where people can post either ideas or early versions of products um, at, or projects, then ask for uh, the public to back them by pledging money and then, uh, by, and then rewarding backers with a, with a promise of some type of product delivery or similar by specific dates. It's, it's vague and doesn't always work, which makes it uh, a bit fascinating to talk about, which is why we decided years ago to kick around the idea for a podcast about it. Um, and Rob, you were one of the people in, I don't know, 2016 or 2017, where we talked about doing this episode, which is why I, I specifically asked you to, to, to um, if you wanted to join us again for this. And Tina, you've been run, um, writing a series of articles for Retro Encounter for right around two years called Crowdfunding Chronicles, where you highlight crowdfunding uh, products, uh, excuse me, highlight crowdfunding projects uh, specific to RPGs and our audience. Um, so uh, I, I guess starting with you, Tina, uh, what are your very generalized thoughts on crowdfunding, and um, how has how have you enjoyed uh, researching and writing those crowdfunding chronicles articles? Well, originally I started the article because I noticed there was a lot of little games I was seeing on, especially Kickstarter, that didn't get a lot of press attention. So I just wanted to bring more attention to them, like especially a lot of little pixel RPGs that don't get on some of the major sites, right? And like overall, I really like Kickstarter. Um, there's also some really good projects on Fig, um, Indiegogo. A few of them just aren't put together that well. Like if there's no screenshots or anything like that, then I just won't cover something like that. But I think overall the platforms have been great for like some bringing in, in some more unique little games. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple of the big alternatives to Kickstarter. Fig, spelled F-Y-G-G, is a more investor-focused oh, one. I think it's just F-I-G. Oh, it's just F-I-G? Yeah. I, oh, I'm thinking of the figs from Dragon Quest Nine. Wow. Okay, I'm I'm really a mess today. <laughs> I apologize. Um, you mentioned a couple other uh, Kickstarter alternatives. Uh, GoFundMe is a is a another crowdfunding one that's very very popular among individuals. But for GoFundMe, you'll find everything from art projects to people uh, asking for funds for medical assistance. So yeah. uh, so crowdfunding is definitely not just limited to video games. Although we'll mostly be talking about video games in this episode. Um, I, I doing some research before this episode. I found a number that there are over two thousand crowdfunding sites uh, in an article in twenty eighteen. So there's definitely a lot out there. Uh, one interesting one: uh, Square Enix Collective was a crowdfunding project that Square Enix ran for about four or five years. Um, they 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 sort of folded in twenty eighteen. Uh, but yeah, I really like that site too. I to just like disappear sort of i didn't I, I, realize I, I, that it folded i no. liked um a lot of what they put out like tokyo dark and um i haven't played forgotten Anne yet but that's um 
on my list of something I really want to check out. Uh, Moonlighter is a game that they put out, I think, in 2017 or 2018 that I know Greg played um, and talked about during some episodes of Random Encounter. Uh, that's a small studio in Spain. But Square Enix Collective, I think it still exists, but it's not really a crowdfunding platform anymore. It's a it's a, like a specific UK-based studio uh, within Square Enix that focuses on small projects, but it's not really a public crowd, crowd crowdfunding site anymore. And Tina mentioned that a lot of... Uh, crowdfunding project projects were not getting a lot of mainstream coverage and um for better or for worse rpg fan was part of the problem uh we didn't we specifically didn't cover kickstarter projects for a couple of years because and even though we got a lot of emails from um, indie developers asking us to cover their projects and uh the reasoning being we don't know how real this is we don't know how trustworthy these developers are we are suspicious that if any of these might ever come to light unless it was an enormous Kickstarter project at the level of a Bloodstained or an Aiden Chronicles. So, uh, Tina, you pitched it to Mike Salvato and the others to have just a dedicated article to Kickstarter RPG projects or, or crowdfunded RPG projects. That seemed like the right solution, to have it, in, like, to have it not be front-page news, but some level of dedicated coverage. So, so now yeah. we are covering uh, indie crowdfunding campaigns, uh, the past two years in a way that we didn't for quite for quite some time. So, Rob, um, what? Did, give me your general thoughts on on crowdfunding projects and how you think it's affected how uh, how we play RPGs or how RPGs are made. Okay. Um, ideally, Kickstarter is meant to be disruptive, right? You know, as you said, it's meant to be a, a, a means to provide smaller indie developers with financial backing to get their works out there. Uh, when they wouldn't be able to otherwise, and then, you know, to perhaps uh, avoid a, a pesky uh, um, deal with a devil with a, with a publisher or a venture capital firm or something like that. Um, but I'm kind of critical of Kickstarter as a whole. Um, I think that, like, if we look at, like, the top 10 most successful Kickstarters, we see a lot of familiar names. Um, one that uh, I think is kind of exemplary of some of the problems with Kickstarter is um, Shenmue 3. And that's, you know, that's not to say that Shenmue's bad or that it doesn't have its fans. Um, but like one thing that I noticed when I was, um, when I first got wrapped up in the Kickstarter craze and I was um, uh, um, contributing to uh, projects that were heralded as like a return to, uh, to a dead series um, or a uh, um, the new project from a uh, uh, from an auteur who hadn't gotten something out there in a while. Mm -hmm. um, I found that like mm, you can't really go back, can you? Um, and you like the idea of a return to uh, return to one of your favorite franchises, but in practice, uh, it might be like you like the idea of how you felt in those days rather than seeing um, seeing something like that continue. Uh, and I'm I'm using Shenmue as an example uh, for a few reasons. Um, first of all, Shenmue is so time and place and was incredibly divisive uh, at the time of its release, um, you know, ultimately being a financial failure, but it's indisputable that it was um, a technologically groundbreaking game that dared to do something very different that had ever been seen on console before. Uh, th their initial goal was uh, two million. Uh, of course, you're not. You're probably not going to get 70 million uh, from a Kickstarter, as we can see. Uh, looking at some of the games we're going to talk about later, almost none of there's only one of them that cracks the uh, uh, <laughs> that that uh, exceeds that total. Um, we we found out once the um, 
once the Shenmue uh, Kickstarter was announced at E3 of all places, uh, it was also revealed that um, the crowdfunding money was going to be used as like a, a proof of uh, a proof of fan enthusiasm to present to um, to Sony uh, and a few other uh, uh, firms, such as uh, this uh, venture capitalist firm called Shibuya, uh, based out of I want to say Sweden, um, and uh, Deep Silver. Uh, so really it's like, oh, you didn't actually need this money to complete this game. And this isn't enough money to complete this game anyway. It's just like, here's this money, give me some more money. Um, and I'd like to quote um, uh, the, uh, uh, Dr. Dario Lali here, who, who wrote about this, uh, who said, um, I quote, uh, in spite of its new mission in support of a more creative and equitable world, uh, the platform's acceptance of huge crowdfunding projects deflated by the aid of invisible investors is disseminating a fairly inaccurate idea of the actual costs of video game production. This has particularly negative effects to those small studios and developers that can only rely on crowdfunding initiatives for the financing of their projects. Indie developer Katie Kiranis notices, for example, when you ask for half a million dollars and you really need five million, it becomes impossible for games with realistic budgets to survive. It's not that people don't understand what a game costs. It's more that Kickstarter is actively distorting people's understanding of a sane budget. The ecosystem is now being poisoned for projects that need to raise that need to raise its actual workable budget for a game. Yeah, um, and for me, it might have been Pillars of Eternity because that's Obsidian Games, a huge, huge studio uh, that uh, that went to Kickstarter for their projects, and they they I mean. This is a studio that made Fallout New Vegas, that's made AAA games before. Why are they going to crowdfunding? And um, to, to a degree, having them use crowdfunding as a proof of concept is not a bad idea. They're like, they're like we'll only, we can only make this game if we know there's enthusiasm for it, so we'll use this as a, as a measuring stick for enthusiasm. Like, that's not a bad idea. But yeah, it almost feels like a pre-order yeah, yeah, it, mm. it, yeah, they're treating it like a pre-order or a like a ghost of a pre-order. But indie developers s sometimes need Kickstarter or crowdfunding to make their games at all, and this will yeah. be their entire budget out of outside of their personal savings. So it's uh, a a game like uh, oh, I'm I'm just looking down here. A game like FTL, which raised about two hundred thousand uh, dollars, and it was the uh, the for a while, for about uh, <laughs> for something like three weeks, it was the biggest uh, Kickstarter video game of all time until double, the Double Fine Adventure uh, launched less than a month later. Um, I, I believe that FTL's entire budget was two hundred k or less. Like, I, I I believe that. Yeah. yeah. So so like AAA studios. Or or celebrated creators like I mentioned, Aiden Chronicle and Bloodstained earlier in this episode. I'm not sure those people need Kickstarter, and having them use Kickstarter in the same environment as tiny uh, studios like the guy who made FTL or the two guys who made Star uh, Cosmic Star Heroine, it, it's a it's a disparity because those are two entirely different game budgeting strategies, and both of them employ crowdfunding, and because those two different uses of crowdfunding put in the same box will will distort the community's view of crowdfunding and it's it's weird i uh I, I mentioned double fine adventure that was the um that was the first uh video game kickstarter project to break a million and it ended up landing at around three million dollars in 2012 and ended up being a, a broken a broken age part one and part two uh and that i think <laughs> kickstarted 
um, interest in Kickstarter with a lot of big Kickstarters happening oh, in yeah. the in the say 2012 to 2016 range and seeing and Kickstarter's record for biggest project kept, was like kept breaking every few months it felt like in, in that range um, and, and, and some Kickstarter projects were very successful. Like I mentioned, I think FTL is one of the really good examples of a, of a successful indie uh, Kickstarter can, campaign because it met stretch goals, delivered a full product, and is popular to this day. F- FTL is good. It's worth it's worth checking out if you. It's it's kind of yeah. yeah. It's kind of it's a it's a space uh, sim game with roguelike elements that feels like Oregon Trail in space sometimes. <laughs> uh, I really like FTL. And um, played uh, Into the Breach. Oh yeah, I have played into into the breach. That was the um that was the same uh, the same guy's next game with that, that's it's right. like a time travel sort of small scale uh, strategy RPG rogue like that. That thing's really interesting, but uh, like there are indie success stories on Kickstarter and uh, indie studios continue to use Kickstarter now. But I think that um that uh, f- early window of the first four years or so after Double Fine Adventure was sort of when it peaked in enthusiasm because uh, there was a lot of excitement around how it could possibly energize indie developers. And also people hadn't really quite gotten wise to it yet. Like um, there weren't a ton of high profile failures and, uh, and enthusiasm didn't wane until, you know, uh, Kickstarter became or crowdfunding became a more common reality. And they, and uh, people started to notice the failures as much as the successes, but, but that's a little bit of a, uh, that's a little bit of my personal um, perception of it. Uh, and I should mention, I, I gave to a lot of Kickstarter projects in that first couple of years, including Mighty Number no. 9, which is one I have some regrets about, and a few others that I have much fewer regrets about. But I think the last two years, I've only given to a crowdfunding project uh, maybe three or four times. I, th- I think one of my friends was trying to raise money to take her dog to the vet, and I did give, for, I did give to Aid and Chronicle. And I gave to I think one or two comics or book related projects. So like I am not nearly the check Kickstarter every week person that I was five years ago. So I'm I'm much wiser to how Kickstarter works and how crowdfunding affects uh, the game industry. But I haven't abandoned it. Um, mm-hmm. Rob, what was the last uh, Kickstarter or crowdfunding project you uh, you remember giving to? Okay, well. Um... I um I I have this uh, this adage with um with with Kickstarter that I kind of touched on earlier that um I think it's important not to fall into the nostalgia trap uh and um you know things like uh, Shenmue and uh, Mighty Number no. 9 are high profile examples of that I kind of fell into it myself with the um uh there was a, the Tex Murphy there was a Tex Murphy follow up um really early on in Kickstarter's history uh the Tesla effect uh, and I remember backing that and being like, oh, you know, I like the idea of playing a new Tex Murphy game. I could just play an old Tex Murphy game. I don't want to <laughs> I don't actually want to play one made in uh, made in, in, in 2014. But uh, I am ever the hypocrite. Um, and I pledged to uh, Auden Chronicles uh, because I'd really like to see what Murayama does. Um, I think I would be much less enthusiastic about pledging towards it if it was called Suicode N6. Um, but you know, I know that this is, uh, this is a, uh, although he is a high profile creator, he's really wanted to helm his own project, uh, again for a very, very long time and hasn't been able to. So, uh, I thought, you know, what the hell I'll, um, I'll, I'll chuck in some money, uh, towards this and see where it goes. Yeah. Almost a weird coincidence that, uh, three high profile creators 
under the Konami umbrella. I'll leave the uh, company when it's when they're you know undermining their own creators' work and are a bit of a sinking ship on the video game side. And then for two of them to turn to crowdfunding and one of them to uh, make his own auteur style game. I'm referring to Kojima. Um, uh, this is the Suikoden guy whose name escapes me. I'm sorry. And Murayama. Andy, yeah, Murayama and Koji Igarashi from uh, from Castlevania. Uh, and, and Igarashi's project being Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which uh, eventually did come out, even though it came out two years later than originally planned. And I thought Bloodstained was very, very good. But I think still, it turned out great. Yeah, I didn't but, back it, but I'm, I'm yeah, I really it. impressed with it. Yeah, I, I, I did back it and love it, because I'm, I'm a bit of a Castlevania fanboy. I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit. Tina, can you remember a, a Kickstarter or a crowdfunding-backed game that you played and enjoyed recently, or maybe one you covered recently in Crowdfunding Chronicles that uh, you, you'd like to bring up? As, yeah, as, I as, finished as... Night in the Woods about a week ago, and I loved it. I just thought it had like the perfect mix of like, humor and sad scenes, and it was really relatable at times. Tina, maybe you're aware of this, maybe you aren't, but I'm pretty sure you're talking to the person who wrote RPG Fan's review of Night in the Woods. I was, yeah, and I was, uh, I was a backer of that project, and it's like it's probably one of my favorite games of all time. So, I mean, that's a big uh, for, for me in my heart of hearts. Uh, that is uh, uh, an outstanding Kickstarter project um, that you know wouldn't have happened otherwise. Uh, I followed that project very, very closely from the uh, from the monthly updates. Uh, that got um, that that got delayed by about two years as well. I you know I I don't think I've ever seen a Kickstarter that's met its initial goal. Um, but um, they, you know, they really turned out uh, an astounding little piece of interactive fiction um, that has, you know, uh, uh, affected so many people. I mean, everybody who I know who's, who, who's played it has uh, really, really positive feelings about it. Uh, I haven't played the little bonus episodes, but I heard they released those before the main game. Like as some kind of a, just a little preview since the, the main game was late. Yeah, yeah. I haven't played those yet either, but um, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to get around to those. I mean, if you want to talk about like like talking about disruptions to the gaming industry, yeah. um, those uh, those developers uh, Scott and and, and Bethany, uh, they uh, they've started a a worker co-op for their next project, the Glory Society, I believe it's called. So uh, it's it's oh, that's interesting. It's them, and it's a third member. I think a I think a sound designer, and like all three of them, you know, have uh, equal positions in the company, and and will be getting equal shares of profits and. Uh, I don't know if they're going to uh, crowdfund their next project or what, but I mean, I, I'm always uh, happy to hear something like that. Um, uh, uh, Dead Cells had a very similar um, uh, format, and that was a really successful game. So it's always, you know, enticing to hear uh, about worker-led co-ops. Dead Cells, another game I haven't played. I have a bit of a of a fear of roguelikes or an, an anti a, a negative feeling about roguelikes, which has been recently fixed with my obsession with Hades. So maybe I don't know. Maybe I have Dead Cells in my future as well. I'm, I, although I don't think I own a copy of that one. Um, talking about projects I personally backed, uh, the most money I ever gave to a Kickstarter was for a game I mentioned earlier, Cosmic Star Heroine, um, made by the uh, by the uh, Zboid Games duo. Uh, Robert Boyd and Bill Sternberg. Um, I, that that's a uh, an indie RPG with that's uh, they I think they overpromised at the beginning, um, saying that it was inspired by their love of Chrono Trigger, uh, Lunar, and Fantasy Star among others, which is I- extremely uh, lofty goals or um, 
although it was genuine, the, that was genuinely the, uh, that was genuinely their influences for the game. Um, I think Cosmic Star Heroin ended up great, but I uh, gave so much money to it that I it made me a little bit hesitant to ever <laughs> uh, give that much again to a Kickstarter project. I, I'm, I'm not I'm a little bit hesitant to say what the exact amount was, but if you want to look it up, it was uh, um, I uh, what I ended up doing was um, I, I designed a optional boss for the game. Um, that, that that is in the final version of the game. Uh, it it was a a ghost version of my of one of my childhood pets, in fact. But Aww. yeah, <laughs> that's very uh, cute. Yeah, she uh she was a Labrador Retriever whose uh, one of her favorite toys was a garden rake that she would that she would like run Aww. around the yard with, and um we made her into a ghost dog samurai for uh, uh for Cosmic Star Heroin. <laughs> that and I believe that defeating her gives a uh, is part of the side quest of one character to get some new skills, but uh, so I'm I'm happy with how she turned out. But um, the game itself uh, is good, but I just gave myself sticker shock for how much I pay, how much I gave to the Kickstarter. So, um, but it, but it's a good game that I encourage people uh, um, play if they can. It's available on every console now, but. You know, Kickstarter is not all indie successes. Um, one particularly spectacular failure, uh, where I mean, I mean, Rob mentioned uh, like Kickstarter projects, people giving to them enthusiastically because of their memory of a game rather than the promise of a game. Um, and Unsung Story might be the worst version of that because. Uh, oh no. Yeah. Um, I mean, none other than uh, than the the creator of Final Fantasy Tactics uh, had this, you know projected as a successor and it ended up being uh like bought out by a mobile game company called Playdeck who who's of, of whom I think I have a couple card games on my phone and yeah, they do like digital versions of yeah. like, tabletop games don't Yeah, they? I have a digital I think I think they do the digital version of Ascension which is what made me think of them. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. and Ascension a very good card game. Um and the digital version's fine, but uh like unsung story that project ended up um that matsuno project ended up being so awful that uh, i think they ended up giving back the money to a lot of backers and it's technically not dead i think playdeck still intends to do something with that yeah. name but it's, it's uh not not with playdeck anymore it's not um, with playdeck, playdeck anymore hand, they well, handed yeah. it over to a company called little orbit yeah. and apparently it's coming out next month <laughs> no i i i did not know that and i don't believe it right now um but is it still intended to be a a, uh, a mobile platform strategy RPG? Yeah, I mean, there was a stream of it over the summer. Um, like, Weird. Um, I, I tend to go by the adage, if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, an unsung story, um, I couldn't get over how, like, they were very um, eager to name drop Yasumi Matsuno, but mm. it was never really clear what his involvement would be and how much involvement he actually had. And didn't um, he leave altogether? He did. He did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they met some stretch goals to bring along um, some other uh, tactics ogre and and Final Fantasy tactics collaborators like artist uh, Akihiko Yoshida and um, the Bass Escape musicians. Um, and like by mid 2016, um, there'd been no mock-ups and no. I mean, there'd been only mock-ups, no actual screenshots or gameplay footage. Uh, then Matsuno and everybody else who they brought in had left the team as well as like the core the core programmers, so it went over to Playdeck. Um, and it, it's very obvious from the um, stream that they did over the summer that, like, I, mean, I don't know about Matsuno, but um, Base Escape and Akihiko Yoshida are definitely not involved because their work <laughs> is, is not in the demo that they were showing. 
I, I did not give to that project because I was just too suspicious. And um, yeah, uh, although, suspicious. yeah, although that was in the window of when I was giving to a lot of Kickstarter projects. But I remember like being on uh, Final Fantasy or RPG forums at the time. There was so much hype around that among very specific circles that it was a little amazing to watch it crash and burn the way it did. I, I thought that it was sort of still floating around as someone's intellectual property, but was completely unaware of its uh, recent stream or of its and, and of its upcoming release. That's wild. But like, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's a scam. I, I think there's very, very few scams, but uh, hundreds of mismanaged projects. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, calling, calling it a scam, I think is a little unfair, but mismanaged yeah. project, 100% agree. There's so many campaigns that get put up way too early in development. Or like, like by, um, by people who've never been project managers before, you know? And I mean, having, having, the, having the money is um, a, a, core, uh, a, a core requirement to make your project, but you also you know, need to have experience in managing a project of that scale and, and meeting your backer expectations. Yeah, and and I I mean this these don't get a lot of money, but I think there were definitely some projects that were first time developers with big ideas who tried to get funding together just with something like concept art, um, but were mm. completely unready for their uh, realities of game development. Now, there's there's one project I've been following for oh I don't know probably five years. I'd have to check, um, but uh, uh, Heartforth Alicia with a very a very talented um, background oh my artist. God, I I forgot that's still not out. Yeah, it's still not out because it's a very talented artist who um, had a, a lot of uh, of like um, work in progress um, art for the game. Uh, put out the Kickstarter, I want to say six years ago, but I, I could be off mm. by that. Um, and I so, wanted to back that one, but I wasn't financially secure. I did. I, I, I did know, back it, but I waited. I did back it because it was in that window when I was giving a lot. Yeah, it was 2014. I was I was right, but it, um, that game is still not out. Because, and I think it's because it's a talented artist who had never really made a game before using Kickstarter to try to have that be the funding and the start that he needed to actually make the game. But now it's 2020 and the game is still not out. Uh, we, he, I, had, I had a similar experience with um, Radio the Universe, uh, who's like a very talented pixel artist uh, doing their first game. Uh, and that was mm. supposed to be out in in 2014, um, but I mean he's he's making regular updates and showing uh, footage, so it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> Kickstarter's not a pre-order. Uh, if yeah. you lose your money, you lose your money. But like he's he's obviously working away on it. So I mean, like, yeah, you know. Yeah, Alonzo uh, Martin intends to release Heartforth Alicia at some point, but I believe the original uh, promise of a release date was 2016, and uh, we we get an art, an update from him. Every several months, but it's uh, but it I'm I'm you know I get increasingly skeptical. But uh, when I get a digital copy of that game, I will definitely fire it up and see how it turned out. It, but that's you know an, a bit of an if. I really appreciate when they give updates like monthly, even if the project yeah. takes forever. I know some of the good ones have just disappeared entirely, and I'm thinking of Project Phoenix. Mm. Yeah. Right. We need to talk about Project Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I, I remember seeing that in lists. I don't think I gave to that. I think it was maybe a, I was starting to wean myself off of giving a lot of money to Kickstarter when that started up. So tell us a little bit about Project Phoenix. Okay, well, it was another strategy RPG, and I think um, based on like inspired by Final Fantasy Tactics and a lot of those classics. It was kind of like another one of those big, too good to be true projects. Yeah, like very, very similar to Unsung Story. I think it was around the same time, too. Yeah, I got them both mixed up quite a bit. 
mid 2010s yeah i i uh i think it's maybe i was just much more focused on unsung story than project phoenix but i uh i i sort of maybe thought project phoenix was an alternative title for unsung story or something because it's it, it it's a very similar pitch with a with a similar lack of uh lack of actual material uh, uh like art or images or demos yeah there's a lot of great concept art on the page like and, and nothing else so like they they claim to have like uh, Nobuo Uematsu involved. Um, mm. I think the project leader is this this guy uh, Hiroaki Yura, who is um, he's a violinist uh, who who plays on lots of game and um, anime soundtracks, um, and uh, like this was like his his first big studio, um, and like mm, I'm 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 not saying that a violinist can't um, direct a game studio, but it seemed like a very um, uh, uh, an in over their heads uh, um, project, especially with the amount of capital that it it attracted uh, from uh, from backers, and that one, I want to say that that just fell off um, almost. Yeah, there hasn't been any after March last year. Wow, so right around a year and a half or or longer. The, um, that, yeah, uh, I remember at one point it's like they got a whole new programming team. That's a bad sign. I, you know, I was really worried about Bloodstained for a while because in back-to-back updates, they brought in new development teams for uh, for asset and testing. Assets and testing. Concept at, at one point. Yeah, it, it like, was com. Yeah, right concept. On, right which, on the heels of people complaining about Mighty Number no. Nine. Yeah, it was com. <laughs> it was concept and uh, oh shoot, um, uh, Dave Lang's studio in Chicago. Uh, oh, Iron Galaxy. Yeah, Iron Galaxy. It? Yeah, like they brought in both of those to do sort of like finishing touches work on Bloodstained, and those announcements came a month or two apart. So that made me wonder, oh no, is this thing being held up by gumdrops and toothpicks? They need to bring in extra studios just to put something out. But the the final product ended up being um, uh, quite excellent. So I was my my yeah. wor- my fears were a little unfounded, um, or or at least ended up being unfounded uh, when, when that happened. But like that that's just the kind of alarming development you don't love to hear <laughs> when, when a game you're interested is uh, is is under development. Um, you know, if I had to pick a best video game project to come out of uh, Kickstarter, in terms of just sort of general acclaim, it might be the Divinity games, uh, because Divinity: Original Sin One and Original Sin Two were both Kickstarter games. Uh, that was, I think, Divinity: Original Sin One was just trying to measure fan enthusiasm following Divine Divinity, and then Original Sin Two was more of a proof of concept that got more and a lot that was just to try to attract investors, but. Uh, I mean, those two games have really loyal followings, including among RPG fan staff. I think Divinity: The Original Sin Two is like one of Steve Meyerink's uh, favorite games of all time. Now, the very idea of like the the, the top down um, uh, Black Isle style um, RPG, but co op, is is a really enticing one. Um, and um, we, uh, Wasteland Three, which came out a couple of months ago. Uh, does the same sort of uh, the same sort of thing where like you and a buddy uh, play like back-to-back partners um, and it's an incredibly uh, satisfying shot in the arm to an old formula yeah uh, we mentioned pillars of eternity one and two earlier and also torment tides of numenara are all games uh, from obsidian and chris avalone and that crowd making games like those isometric uh, uh, black isle or even eternity engine rpgs uh like from 20 years ago and 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 again i think just i'm not sure those projects ne- needed kickstarter because those are huge names but uh like 
they sort of reaffirmed the popularity of that kind of game when maybe AAA developers were thought it was passe, which is, you yeah, know, it, yeah, th- th- that's an interesting con- that's an interesting positive consequence of Kickstarter or or crowdfunding the, uh, that um, some of these old styles have so much positive nostalgia that the, a, a successful game project can arise from that design philosophy. It's in in Obsidian's defense. I mean, although they've made big games they've only been able to make big games when they've had big money behind them from a publisher yeah, that's true um, it was it was bethesda money that helped make fallout new vegas oh definitely um and um you know i i can't imagine them like pitching pillars to somebody like microsoft or bethesda and getting it greenlit so i understand why they would go to kickstarter for a project like that and then you know maybe they saw the the writing on the wall that um mm, kickstarter maybe maybe we should leave this to like the smaller indies and then they moved to fig for uh pillars of eternity too um which like it seems like it's um it, it seems like there's more i mean the, the whole point of fig is to you can either back as an individual a la Kickstarter or you can like back as a organization to get a share of the profits. I think Double Fine turned to Fig for Psychonauts 2 or a, a they, different... They created Fig. Yeah, yeah, right. But I, I remember like I, I remember thinking it was crazy at the time that one of the groups that blew up Kickstarter uh, like ended up moving on to their own platform. Which is, you know, mm, yeah. it, 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 I don't it know. It raises some questions, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kickstarter does get a cut of um, all of their uh, investment, successful investment projects. So, which makes the the Kickstarter numbers that we've been citing over and over in this episode, inc- they take five percent. Five percent. Okay, bad. so it's not but still not, you need not to quite budget as bad. That as, in when you're crowdfunding. Yeah, exactly. And so not quite as bad as I thought, but uh, still, it's uh, again this being mostly new to the 2010s. It's so fascinating that uh, that it's a, a regular part of our um, of the, how we consume games now. Like without without uh, crowdfunding, I don't think uh, early access projects would exist, um, and and that has been a big part of especially uh, PC indie games the past two or three years. Uh, with games like uh, Nuclear Throne had a really good early ac- early access, but uh, but now early access is a lot of it is just complete unplayable messes that are being sold for 99 cents on steam just to get try and really? get people to follow their projects yeah oh man yeah um i i don't tend to dip too much too far into early access like if i'm really interested in a project um and it's something like um if it's something like a roguelike that's just going to grow and you can play over and over again um i'll have a peek then like i i bought uh crypt of the necrodancer when that was in early access mm. uh one of my favorite games in early access at the moment is world of horror the junji ito inspired uh um uh horror card-based roguelike okay um, that, that's, yeah. that's 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 interesting and i i enjoy junji ito but i don't think i want to play a junji ito game <laughs> Just because I'm worried it will it, about what it would do to me. Oh, there's there's some stuff with eyeballs you don't want to know. No, you know I have I have some idea, but I'm not going to confirm that hypothesis. <laughs> but yeah, like um, I, I yeah I, I'm I'm cool with dipping into uh, a um, an early access project that's like smaller and uh, is based on you know adding adding replayable content, whereas something like um, like. I think Torment, uh, Torment Tides of Numenera launched in early access. And it's like, okay, this is a giant game with like reams and reams and reams of text. I think I just, you know, would rather wait until this is out. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes but sense. I understand if you know the most viable way for them to make it come out is through early access. But yeah, it's uh, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? One other thing that I've heard uh, I've heard commentary about this in, in in various theaters over the past decade or so. But there's been a bit of a lament over the uh, disappearance of the mid-budget game. And then this is like, this is me mis- listening to you know mainstream video game podcasts and, and the like, where uh, they there was a concern that um, because video game budgets have ballooned over the past fifteen years, that a game needs to be huge and successful to even justify it being made, which means that publishers are increasingly less risky or, or less willing to take risks when they commit uh, when they commit to making a game. While whereas in the say mid two thousands or earlier, uh, like you'll get more experimental, more risky games with medium or large budgets because those medium and large budgets just weren't weren't hundreds of millions of dollars. So as, as part of that observation, people were lamenting a game that like like the the $40 interesting weird RPG is is uh wasn't getting made for a while because again like like the commentary of Square Enix saying that uh that Tomb Raider has to has to make has to sell 10 million copies for them to make another one so, do you remember that from 8 years ago or however long uh like a commentary like that made some people concerned and crowdfunding projects, especially these mid-budget ones that maybe get more investment later, uh, or, or ones that have very successful campaigns with uh, with s- different investment later, might be filling that gap. A, a game that's too, a little too weird or experimental to get immediate approval or investment from a large studio might get uh, made from a successful crowdfunding campaign and then later investment. But Do you think there's some truth to that, or were people just... Are, are people just being weird that uh, that that game prices are uh, game budgets were getting alarmingly high? Oh, I suddenly started thinking about Tokyo RPG Factory. Oh and boy! I don't mm. know if they shut down or because I, I haven't heard of any new projects coming out from them, and I heard their last one wasn't too successful. Yeah, they put out their first action RPG last year, Oninaki, which I think yeah. was right. one of their more interesting games. I don't know how successful it was though. Yeah, because I, I really like their first game, and I was just hoping for more along those lines, right? Yeah, I, I remember. I, I, okay, I remember seeing uh, uh, promotional material of I Am Setsuna and Oninaki, and I definitely saw both of them at E3 in those years. But uh, I mean, I mean, Tokyo RPG Factory is a subsidiary of Square Enix, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's. Like that mid-budget thing is still coming from a large pr- publisher taking a significant risk, and I, I I don't know how well Oninaki did, but I think that there's some concern about that studio's future. Be, be yeah, um, yeah, it's not looking good. It looks like they it was like they operated at a net loss of 154 million yen this year. Oh, so I guess Oninaki didn't do good. <laughs> and I, I mean, to a degree, you could argue that uh, like Square Enix is trying to make games to fit different budgetary things because uh, like what what uh, Tokyo RPG Factory makes is far different from a Final Fantasy 7 remake or an Avengers game uh, or the recent PS4 uh, Xbox One Avengers which were which were both square uh, studios working under Square Enix but uh but but huge budget so i think like Square Enix has been trying to make different kinds of games 
from uh like and in between those you have your uh bravely defaults and and octopath travelers which are yeah i was gonna we, say look at octopath yeah yeah th those the success yeah those aren't like triple a triple a budget games but they're you know still big releases that that did very well and i'm, I'm still really uh hopeful about bravely default 2 coming out next year so I think that Square Enix is sort of trying multiple strategies for different game budgets and game projects. And maybe Tokyo RPG Factory was not a very successful one, and Square Enix Collective wasn't a very successful one. But, you know, some do work, and Square Enix is still making some, some good video games. Like, uh, the, I, I haven't heard very many good things about their recent Avengers game from, uh, from, from Eidos or Crystal Dynamics. But uh, Final Fantasy XIV is still great. A lot of people liked uh, the FF7 remake. Um, I think um, the, the the fear of of the dis the disappearance of the mid game uh, the, the mid budget game I think um, that was a very real thing in the past I think maybe we're kind of moving past it now because um, I remember that was something that I really lamented uh, during the the 360 and PS3 era in particular and why mm -hmm. I um, I primarily moved to handheld gaming uh, during that period um, because that kind of like felt like a continuation of these smaller budget. Uh, but um, loaded with charm games uh, that that uh, I really liked about the PS1 and PS2 era, whereas um, the the 360 and PS3 era felt like there was very little experimentation going on, and um, lots of studios were playing it safe. Um, and I'm seeing like I don't know personally, I've seen a lot more experimentation this uh, this generation uh, than there has been um, than there had been the generation prior. So, uh, you know, with, with um, so many uh, tools um, available to creators, like the, the bar to game development, like while, while game development is still very expensive, the bar to entry has never been lower, <laughs> for better or worse. Personally, I think that's a positive. Um, so, you know, like we're seeing, for example, Adult Swim are uh, putting out... Uh, are putting out a, a wide variety of interesting games. And that's, that's not somebody who you would usually think of as, as a game publisher, um, but they're putting out some cool stuff like um, uh, this. Uh, uh, oh, the one that really comes to mind is um, Death's Gambit, the um, oh, right. Souls-inspired uh, Metroidvania game. Yeah, that, that game had some, had some pretty amazing, uh, um, uh, I don't know if sprite's the right word, but, but, but like the animation of the, ma of the main character's attacks are sort of uh, brilliant and bloody and brutal. <laughs> Yeah, really, really nice voice acting and writing as well. Um, and then um, uh, Devolver still putting out pretty cool, uh, pretty cool projects that that get a lot of press. Um, so I mean, there's uh, there's never been more games out there at the moment. So I I, I think that like I, I largely have a a more positive outlook than I would have in previous years. Um, but I mean, you know, <laughs> inflation and one upmanship and one upmanship is still a thing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, like, yeah. I, sorry, go ahead. No, I think you hit the nail on the head. Where the budget bloat and the concerns about uh, lack of the lack of risk taking really did happen, sort of in the middle of the PS Wii sixty generation, and things have gotten better recently. And uh, I think that different fundraising strategies like crowdfunding are part of it. Also, the wide acceptance of um, base programming engines like uh, like Unity or uh, or Unreal has been has been a factor. A lot of Square Enix games are made in the Unreal Engine, and that probably saves a lot of development costs. Uh, and probably saves them like 
from operating at a loss as well. You know, yeah. like um, in the in the 360 era with Final Fantasy 13 and and insisting on developing all their own proprietary engines instead of working on middleware. Um, and <laughs> you know, we know the troubled history that 13 had. Yeah, adapting middleware uh, helps some of these large budgets and maybe allows them to make more interesting games at large budgets. It's uh, like none of us are professional game developers and um, talking about game development and game budgets is something that uh, that fans of video games love to do, especially in, in, in uh, you know, sub-professional projects like uh, like amateur podcasts. But it's so fascinating to me. It's so fascinating to me that uh, like a zillion things have to go right for a game to be functional and paying for them. Has to, you even have to get into weird disruptive strategies like crowdfunding to even make that happen sometimes? But I, 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 am not completely, uh, I'm not completely over it because I mean they gave me, they gave me Bloodstained last year and might give me a really good Auden Chronicle two years from now. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, also Kickstarter um, it, it, it ties in nicely with digital distribution, which. Um, you know, I, I think that's kind of a um, a deterrent against piracy, really. Um, with so many games at your fingertips digitally, you know, you, you, you press a button and buy something and then download it. I think that, um, you know, now that everything is, is just, you know, uh, ubiquitously available, um, there's not scarcity, especially of, of RPGs and JRPGs, yeah. which like... You know, some of the most beloved or sought-after games of, of the 32-bit and, and PS2 and, and GameCube era, they're just not available. And, you know, sometimes, let's, let's say maybe, maybe somebody will um, resort to some, some gray area seeking down uh, of, a, uh, of a game that would otherwise be over $1,000 for uh, for a used physical copy um but whereas you know where everything's available digitally and and kickstarter really encourages this like we're going to make a digital product and it will be in in your hands once it's ready um i i think it's you know probably had a a, a positive effect on on revenue for for creators i mean mm -hmm. you know shenmue 3 again uh as much as i feel like it didn't need to be on kickstarter you know i think about how shenmue 1 and 2 um, were so big and then like were you know completely operated at a loss because of uh, uh, hackers creating the Pandora boot disk for the Dreamcast in in early 2000 which just allowed bootlegs of anything to be burned and 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 played um, whereas um, Shenmue 3 it's like okay here you know <laughs> buy your copy and download it straight away yeah um, one of the one of the dirty secrets about piracy is that more effective than any anti-piracy software or anti-piracy tools is just making things really easy to buy because people absolutely because people love shopping and buying things <laughs> yeah the, the the age of buying way too much on gog sales or steam sales is still ongoing <laughs> oh, uh, I, every time every time still yeah oh man <laughs> Like I, I I see the notification. Uh, I my, I always keep my Steam wish list around the twenty five to thirty range, just to just to follow games I'm interested in. I'll get the notification. Twenty one games on your wish list are are on sale, and, I, and then I you know post the gif of uh of Jordan Peele sweating. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, if we're talking about uh, gifs of Jordan Peele and, uh, <laughs> and and Steam sales, we might be at the end of the episode. Uh, thank you so much. Tina and Rob for joining me on this journey through uh, crowdfunding 
and Kickstarter and uh, and bloated projects and video game budgets and all the places we rambled to. We managed to avoid talking about Star Citizen, which is probably for the best because the just the very idea of Star Citizen makes me feel a little gross. It hurts um, my head. Yeah, it's a, a game that's uh, made over $275 million from crowdfunding campaigns that is still technically not officially released. It is still in some alpha or beta, and people have spent millions of dollars on it, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. But well, something I do want to talk about <laughs> is, uh, is the, rest of, uh, the rest of 2020 in Retro Encounter. Um, next week, we're doing our second part on Final Fantasy X-2. It was, we were originally going to have uh, this episode go after ten two and but we ended up flipping them because frankly all three people on that panel including me are struggling to finish final fantasy ten two. <laughs> um but uh but that is coming next week and in De- december we have five episodes planned uh one of them is to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the tales of series we're going to do a fantasy draft of characters and ideas and summons and all kinds of stuff from the tales series uh to replace the hole in my heart that is uh the absence of fantasy football which i gave up uh in 2018 for reasons i don't want to go into fantasy football is the worst uh and also three episodes on the first three super giant games bastion transistor and pyre uh now i confess rob um uh, you hosted a very fine podcast a few years ago and you had your own month of super giant games when you were recording that podcast we did yeah yeah we did those three as well uh, back when I was doing the Santa play with Alva, this uh, was... and I'd never played any of them before, and I played them all over the course of a month, and I had a great time. Yeah, that I listened to those episodes; they were great. I played Bastion many years ago. I played Transistor for the first time um, earlier this year. In fact, I got it on a on a Switch sale for three dollars or something, and then and played that for the first time. And I still haven't played Pyre. So um, as soon as I'm done with Final Fantasy X two, um, Pyre is next on the list, and I will. Uh, Host all three of those episodes and discuss all three of the, or I should say, the first three Supergiant games in December. And with the fifth episode in December, of course, being our annual year-end episode. So, uh, but listeners, if you want to um, listen to past Retro Encounter, present Retro Encounter, or future Retro Encounter, you know where to find us. It is retro at RPGfan.com. You can also uh, find our podcast on any of your podcast uh, sharing apps, iTunes, Google Play, however you, uh, whatever listening venue you use, we are on basically all of them. Uh, we also have three other fine podcasts on our on RPG Fan: Random Encounter about randomness, Rhythm Encounter about RPG Fan music, alive for the first time since 2017, and Phoenix Edge, a weekly podcast focused mostly on current events. Uh, RPG Fan also has message boards, a Facebook page, an Instagram page, a Twitter page, a Discord server, a Twitch streaming every day. There are many, many ways to consume RPG Fan content, and they are all located at places called RPG Fan or RPG Fan Com. Um, so yeah, but thank you again, Robert and Tina. It was a delight to talk to both of you, especially since it has been a long time since talking to either of you. And uh, and and please do not let this be your uh, your final encounter on Retro Encounter. I'm very touched that you had me back. It was really nice to uh, it's really nice to catch up and and uh, say hey to everybody. Yeah, I expect to be back soon for the Transistor episode. Ooh, nice! You're gonna play. Uh, is this your first time playing Transistor? Yep. And awesome. I think I got it for three dollars. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the uh, transistor came out in 2014, so it's been floating out there on all of those uh, um, digital uh, digital distribution services that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, it, it's very easy to to get Bastion or Transistor on your machine. Um, Pyre isn't on the Switch, but is definitely on PS4 and PC, which is uh, so it, it's uh, 
it's not that hard to get a hold of that one. Hades, their fourth game, came out very recently, and I adore it. Um, and I may try to finagle a way to talk about Hades on those episodes. I just bought it, and I haven't fired it up yet. I'm so excited to do so. Oh, it's so good. It, it, it scratches multiple itches for me, especially the uh, especially the hole in my heart from when I deleted Diablo 3 off my computer. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, listeners. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Tina. Please read Tina's crowdfunding uh, crowd, excuse me, crowd, crowdfunding chronicles articles. But uh, Rob and Tina, how can listeners find you directly? Starting with you, Rob. Oh, um, I'm on Twitter at nervous and you are V U S S. I'm pretty lazy now that I don't write for RPG fan anymore. Uh, but um, hardcore gaming have just put out the unofficial guide to Shin Megami Tensei and Persona, Ooh. Uh, which you can um, buy at any fine book retailer. Uh, if you want to hear more or read more uh, Persona One Apologia from from yours truly, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's it's one to pick up. I also wrote up uh, Majin Tensei and, and Last Bible, um, so uh, it's a big definitive guide of everything that's out to date. So uh, if you're a fan of SMT and uh, and Persona. Uh, give it a peek. Tina, how, listen, how can listeners reach you directly? Uh, Kittensoft39 on Twitter. I post screenshots of whatever I'm playing mixed in with all sorts of cute animal pictures. And, uh, and you're also a, uh, an, an artist who posts your, your own fan art or, or similar art on, uh, on Twitter and Instagram as well, right? Yeah, I just reactivated my old Twitter art page, but you can also find that at Kittensoft underscore art. Oh, okay. I, I definitely follow you, your main account on Twitter. I'll have, to, I'll have to follow that second one as well in case I haven't. I'm not sure. I, yeah, I've been using it for about a year, and now I'm kind of back there just to split off the gaming stuff and the art. I'm, I'm very active on Twitter, but I'm not always good about following people because just because, I, just because it's very easy to not notice things in the morass that is Twitter. But speaking of the morass that is Twitter, listeners, the best way to reach me is Twitter. I'm at The Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times. And uh, I also have an account where I host my uh, back my other podcast project, Bravely Distance, which will have episodes coming soon in November, believe it or not. Um, I, I had a, a round of ex- being extremely busy at work in the summer and fall uh, because one person in my section retired. And then due to the pandemic, uh, we only had one person in the office at a time instead of three. So I just had work has just been exhausting for months for me. And that, that's why my oh, I fell off my project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why my pod- pandemic my- season. Yeah, exactly. That's when my that's why my podcast project fell off a little bit. But I'm going to re-energize myself and get back on that. And my third, uh, totally unnecessary third Twitter account is where you can find that. But listeners, uh, from Rob, Tina, RPG fan, and I, uh, we we don't have any crowdfunding for Retro Encounter. But anyway, thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>